Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Tom Ward is an economist here in America with a long and distinguished career at major financial institutions from the World Bank to some of the top consulting and financial services firms on the globe. He's going to pick up on a theme we've covered, the real and potentially dire implications of the U.S. Federal Reserve and central banks worldwide flooding economies with money that is known as liquidity in the industry. He'll also talk about the risks of global contagion, inflation, a stock market correction or plunge, the possibility of a repeat of the financial crisis but with a twist, and we look at how Wall Street responds to the Fed's money printing machine. And Tom Ward is my guest coming up. And you've seen the childness of Wall Street. They don't like tapering. As soon as they hear tapering, because they've gotten dependent on the Fed's money and the printing, they just think they're going to constantly be moral hazardly bought out of any problem. Because for the last 10 years, I would argue the market has not really been a market priced market. It's been subsidized or covered by the Fed. So it hasn't really, you know, because it's buying up assets. And so are these assets all overly inflated? Luckily, officially, there hasn't been inflation through all this, but inflation is starting to creep up. The issue is, is what is inflation? A lot of people don't understand what inflation is. Inflation is based on a model from like the 50s. They keep trying to play around with it, much like GDP is based on the 50s and a certain model of basket of things. Often, depending on the different inflation numbers, it may or may not include the energy, which was the whole inflation of the 70s. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Tom Ward has some jaw-dropping numbers on what it is now costing America to service the interest on our national debt. Yes, it must make Fed Chairman Jerome Powell roll his eyes. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. If I recall right, pre-Obama, the debt service ratio, just to pay the debt on the interest of the debt, not the deficit. And people got to understand deficit is year to year spending of the government below what it raises taxes. Debt is what you actually owe. Yeah. But when you're servicing the debt of that which you owe, like a principal, like a mortgage, it's your principal plus your interest. Uh, Pre-Obama, the number was about 13% to just pay interest alone on the debt. That's not even paying back any of the principal. So right. if you kick that forward to today, my guess is you might be getting closer to 20%. And if you're paying 20% or even 19 or 17% just to pay your interest, how is your government going to operate and pay for its other expenses? I hope you're all well out there because we have a great guest coming up, Tom Ward. He's an economist 
here in America, and he has a very interesting take on our debt inflation monetary policy. And it is a theme we discussed on our last episode with Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group. In a recent note, Dick said inflation in America is now out of control. And we'll get Tom Ward's take. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. My guest is Tom Ward. He is an economist here in America with a long career at major financial institutions from the World Bank to some of the top consulting and financial services firms on the globe. Tom first shared with me some numbers on debt and debt ratios of nations across the planet just to lay out the financial groundwork. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I mean, first off, you got to look at two different numbers. One, your debt to GDP, your your overall debt itself as a country, but then also how your country operates. And it's, of course, interesting to know when you have different type of political systems, how you account for the numbers, but also when you look at the overhead of government operations of GDP compared to the private sector of GDP, if you're trying to look at sustainability, if you believe in markets is the sustainability, well, then you need your private sector to be the markets to pay the taxes to operate the government. You look at debt itself, in 2021, you got uh, Japan's number one, they're at a debt of about point. Uh, about $9 trillion, but I think U.S. is even higher than that. But they're really number one on to GDP, which is about 230% per capita. So for every capita, you have $200 above what they're doing in percentage of what they got to debt to what they're producing. Number two is Greece is back to number two. Portugal's up there at number three. Italy's number four. Bhutan is number five, Cyprus is number six, Belgium's number seven, good old EU center. Uh, the US is number eight, Spain number nine, and Singapore number 10 in that list. What flips on the backside, which I sent you, I think was interesting, was the article on uh, GDP of government spending per GDP. There you have now France, which jumped up from 55% to 62% in spending of government expenditures, which means the private sector is decreasing and the government's taking over the percentages part of it. Greece is number two at 60%, 60.7, Belgium's at 60, just to give you some play. And it's all the EU countries are up there on top. 
Now, the question is, is you don't have China in those numbers, probably because we don't have the government China numbers versus their private sector per se. In terms of global GDP, one of the numbers that was published put it at 289 trillion worldwide. That's government, households, companies, um, all of that debt. And, and, and that's up considerably from the financial crisis. The actual debt, I last I saw what was spent on um, in light of COVID is only about 13 trillion. Yes, correct. But that's the economic losses. Mm-hmm. So your losses are huge. Your actually debt to try to address those losses is, you know, 13 to 200. But is it accurate to say this number of 289 trillion? That's roughly the world's total debt at the moment. Yeah, to be I mean, close to that. Yeah, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. If you add it all up, yeah. Yeah, okay. One of the drivers for this lately has been COVID spending, right? I mean, the bill has oh, been that's astronomical. that's what I'm talking about. So that's the $13 trillion, which is now closer to Yeah, which you mentioned there. And there's no end in sight, although we are reading now about the Fed tapering and coming into a more new normal global economy, although this new normal is a long time coming. Right. Well, the tapering issue is, and you've seen the childness of Wall Street, they don't like tapering. As soon as they hear tapering, because they've gotten dependent on the Fed's money and the printing, they just think they're going to constantly be moral hazardly bought out of any problem. Because for the last 10 years, I would argue the market has not really been a market priced market. It's been subsidized or covered by the Fed. So it hasn't really, you know, because it's buying up assets. And so are these assets all overly inflated? Luckily, officially, there hasn't been inflation through all that. But inflation is starting to creep up. The issue is, is what is inflation? A lot of people don't understand what inflation is. Inflation is based on a model from like the 50s. They keep trying to play around with it, much like GDP is based on the 50s and a certain model of basket of things. Often, depending on the different inflation numbers, it may or may not include the energy, which was the whole inflation of the 70s, was the driver of the inflation of the 70s, but with food and rent. Um, that play into those things. So you got to understand those differences. And like, if you look here in the US, I'm not sure about what's going on in Europe, or like in South Asia, but your mortgage is here, there, nobody's selling houses. So there's a very small demand or supply for a big demand because everyone's trying to move around with COVID. And we've seen housing prices rise. Yes. Sharply. May or may not have the growth of new supply because of the cost of supply, the timber and everything, or the labor to build the stuff. The Fed is hoping the the current rise in prices, the current pace of inflation, single digits, 5% uh, recently, uh, but it keeps growing each month, may just be temporary uh, because of supply disruptions is one of the things they're hoping for. They're hopeful for that, but nobody That's where knows. They're hoping post-COVID you're getting back to normal. The only problem is, is are you going to be constantly paying for the debt on the back end? And is this money just pumping results? And I use the argument, for instance, infrastructure, you want to do a bunch of infrastructure spending. In a country today, how much of that infrastructure is really going back into the economy, 
back into people working when today's infrastructure is high capital cost, which is also building, buying in your cranes or whatever that may or not be from your own country. So how much are you subsidizing other countries through your infrastructure? Have that true rate of return like you did arguably under FDR when he did a major infrastructure push. You've been saying the debt ratios are what are frightening. It's one thing issuing debt and releasing more money into the economy. It's another thing if you can't manage that. Exactly. And that's one of the issues that come into play. Servicing the debt is what I was looking for. If I recall right, pre-Obama, the debt service ratio, just to pay the debt on the interest of the debt, not the deficit. People got to understand deficit is year to year spending of the government below what it raises taxes. Debt is what you actually owe. Yeah. But when you're servicing the debt of that which you owe, like a principal, like a mortgage, it's your principal plus your interest. Uh, Pre-Obama, the number was about 13% to just pay interest alone on the debt. That's not even paying back any of the principal. So if you kick that forward to today, my guess is you might be getting closer to 20%. And if you're paying 20% or even 19 or 17% just to pay your interest, how is your government going to operate and pay for its other expenses? That's of of GDP you're talking about here, 20% of GDP. Yes, Well, of the uh, budget expenditure. Yeah, of the budget expenditure. You add interest rate increase, because this has all been under low interest, you have another factor that comes into play as well, because then your service to debt increases if the interest rates go up. So is the big picture then that we have this massive global debt, uh, central banks have flooded uh, economies uh, with liquidity to, to offset the impact of uh, COVID shutdowns and uh, the seizure of the economies almost, it was a way to stall that. Is the big picture that we simply are not productive enough anymore across the globe, across the West to pay down all of this debt? We've reached that point. Well, I don't know if it's productive. That's a, as an economist, it's kind of like opportunity cost. It's a it's what you think the opportunity is going to be. Productivity, there's lots of different economists who look at productivity differently. Some people argue with IT and innovation, you actually get more productivity. Some would argue that you may even have less because now you have less labor to do the work. So the productivity of the labor might actually decrease as an overall labor. The individual labor who is working might be more and more efficient But are they really just doing more stuff with less? Because now they're inundated with even more stuff. So are they really being more productive? Well, let me rephrase it a little bit here, Tom. Um, In place of productivity, are we generating enough actual wealth from our labors, from the factories, from the farms, um, from IT and other sources to catch up and manage and pay off this debt ultimately? People want to believe that because that's what you believe you have growth of your economy. Mm-hmm. Now, is it just artificial because of the Fed arguably buying up all the equities and actually 
uh, how do I put it, manipulating the true equity values of assets. And could those all fall at some point? That's where you have the argument between your Friedrich and, and others, Melton, Freeman, and others, compared to your Keynesians. The Keynesians are much more, let's just spend money and we will hopefully not have any negative aspect. So that's um, a trade-off between those two different thought processes. I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out here is that we had a we had na- national economies default in 2008 with much less debt. I'm just thinking of Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and now yep. we have even more debt, and they're still operating. And you read, you pick up newspapers about Europe. We may have this robust recovery, unlike anything we've seen before. How is this possible with so much debt? Well, this is the whole factor is are the everything through the central banks being artificially manipulated to look better than what they are because you're not really showing the debt because you keep printing more and more money. And as long as there hasn't been, quote, inflation to reduce the value of the underlying currency, it looks like it's okay. At some point, I believe you do have to pay the piper. You're going to have to pay that debt. And what, why do you say that, Tom? It's just a factor of equality. You can't just keep pumping and pumping and pumping without somehow paying for this artificial. That's the laws of nature, I suppose. Yes. It's, it's a lot like law. the law of what goes up comes down. At some point, you've got to have a balance that one offsets the other. It's, it's basic fundamentals of finance. You have so much debt and you have so much um, liquidity and so much revenue coming in, they balance out. Otherwise, you're going to have a collapse. A little like a small business or a household or a company. That's the way it operates. So you use the word there, collapse. Are we getting nearer to a global collapse in your opinion, by your forecasts? I don't want to say a collapse. I think there could be a, a major correction. That's one could argue overdue because you technically every 10 years you have these corrections globally. We haven't had one since 2008, which is 13 years ago. Yeah. So is it artificially delayed? And if it's delayed, is it going to be even a bigger one than previously, particularly if you're at a bigger debt load? So then you don't have the currency reserves underneath to cover that debt and cover new debt to address a contagion if it comes through. Now, what that contagion could be, it could be like what's happened in the 90s in 2008. It could be on a uh, currency basis. It could be like uh, China, I mean, Russia and Argentina, that it was the government bonds that triggered it. Where it hits in the economy, it's hard saying. But to argue it could be the real estate because it's way overpriced. So one event could trigger global contagion this time around as well. Potentially, yes. Or you could argue it's your unicorn um, tech world of the NASDAQ in particular. That's Are they creating profits compared to their net losses? You know, So is it a dream that it's going to be something someday, but does it ever realize to something of value? Now, to explain to listeners about these unicorns, your argument is that many of these entities are shells. There's, there's nothing behind them except somebody's faith and confidence that maybe one day they will be 
actually worth something? Well, I would start with your cryptocurrency. That's truly just a paper, a piece of paper. And the best way to analogize the, like um, I think you mentioned earlier beforehand, a person who wants to have money in their hand versus in a bank or something else. If it's in your hand, the government can't just take it or devalue it. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Tom Ward. He is an economist here in America with a long career at major financial institutions from the World Bank to some of the top consulting and financial services firms on the globe. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I have a businessman friend who said he hopes the day doesn't come when currency, printed currency, you know, dollars and coins and so on disappear and that we just go totally digital because he feels he has some control. He, his fear is that the government could confiscate his his wealth or at least diminish it somehow. He feels very comfortable having access to real cash and, and taking care of it legally. Yeah. So when you have real cash in your hand, that dollar has a certain value that's been well known in the markets of what is the exchange rate for that particular currency. It has a history with it. It fluctuates. It's been market traded and so forth, unless it's China that doesn't have it out in the market. But with that, you do have the fear that you have to be careful on the back end that plays back into the debt. If there is a concern on the debt, that can reduce the value of that currency because of inflation. And if you get hyperinflation, like what's happened in Zimbabwe, that's happened, it's kind of going on right now in South Africa. You could argue it's happened in Venezuela then that currency you have in your hand doesn't have value. Now, when you get into crypto, the issue with crypto is it's one, it's very small transactions actually happening. There's lots of concerns how much legitimacy in those transactions are going on because of like ransom and so forth. So is it used for legitimate purposes or not? And then you also have, how do you, because there's no transaction, this is what they like is you can't see both sides of the trade. So when I have a dollar bill and I give it to you, you now have that dollar and I do not have it. Crypto, what you have to do, and that's why this mining process happens, is what is called, I call it, you're shredding that electric dollar on one side to then have it transacted over to the other side so that now both sides don't have a dollar on the electric. As compared to a bank um, transaction, there you have a third party mediator who says, you had a bank account, you detracted, debited so much money, whether it's credit card or in a financial transaction, online banking or whatever, who is guaranteeing and monitoring on their books, you move so much money to someplace else. That's where these differences come into play. And that's where the regulators are trying to figure out how do you regulate this new crypto because it's now not a dollar that you have to be shredded, but also how do you have a transaction 
Um, so you can see both sides of the transaction because governments want to collect taxes on it, of course, too. Well, you're no fan of crypto, it doesn't seem like. Crypto has some real potential to it. I'm very nervous when you don't have a true one-to-one relation to know where the values are happening. And I'm very concerned if crypto is just going to be the new magical way to print a bunch of money. And just magically, all of a sudden, there's a lot more money supply in an economy. Um, The Fed magically putting a bunch of money by buying up a bunch of equities to pump up the market. Do you think the market's really pumped up today? Is it not hitting all-time highs? Yes, correct. But do you think that's artificial and it's ready to have a serious correction? I personally think there's some need of some correction, but if the Fed keeps pumping, there won't be that correction because it's artificially pumped up. And the Fed potentially could come back in if there's any serious sign of cracks in the system, pump more money back in, correct? Yes. But the problem is, is once you get Wall Street hooked on this concept of they're going to keep pumping, Wall Street becomes like little children when that money isn't given to them. So Mm. then they get angry and then they dump the stocks. And then the market declines or tanks. Yes. That's where you have these corrections. What happens? But isn't that what isn't that what could happen this time? The Fed has talked about tapering, so couldn't that happen again in the coming months? Yes, every time the Fed talks about tapering, Wall Street is like little kids, and they have temper tantrums, and they say, Mm. "No, we want that money because they get dependent on that money flow." This money the Fed has been issuing through COVID and prior. Who are the major beneficiaries of that in reality? Well, the first thing you got to understand, I think, in my opinion, is you need to have a catalyst to justify the Fed to even do it. A catalyst such as? Such or a crisis, such as whether it's the market fell because of the asset underlying assets in 2008 were depreciated, or you have a COVID that comes in. And that's why they acted this time around. That's what this one is. Now, one could argue, is it all for a, quote, reset that I'm very nervous of just resetting? Because then if you just reset, you're not really letting the markets function. You're just doing a bunch of central banking transactions on top, which is all government flow. And then you're really taking out the the actual market in the private sector. Would you say there's a lot of global economies out there, national economies on the verge of collapse? One could argue that, especially, like I said before, in this an article that I sent you from others who posted it, when you have a government growing and growing and growing to control everything, if you don't have the private sector to maintain the economy and pay the actual taxes, how is a government going to keep operating if it doesn't have payment of taxes to operate? Yeah. And if they get over that 50% threshold, how is it that economy sustainable? Now, people who believe in a government-controlled economy think that's okay and it works, functions just fine. One would argue if that's really sustainable, if you have an underlying tax base to pay for things. If we think about that for a moment, if some of these economies collapse like they did in 2008, How do they get bailed out this time? By the same medicine, austerity measures? Uh, What do the national governments do to recover from this? 
Well, the number one sad part is it's usually your elderly population that gets hurt the most because pensions are usually often the first thing to get hit because they're based on usually your more secure assets and your government assets that devalue, such as, you know, the U.S. Treasury or whatever. Secondly, their cost of living adjustments are the first ones to get hit because they're on pensions. So they're the group that are most vulnerable in the situation. But as far as where, who gets affected and who benefits, of course, your financial traders, they can technically make more money quicker on a downside. Because they can buy distressed assets. They can buy it. Have the cash flow on hand actually grow at the cost of everybody else. When that happens, does it actually help spread the wealth or consolidate the wealth. Well, we saw that in the wake of 08, um, where there was a lot of distressed assets worldwide up for grabs, and some of the big money centers and money banks were able to buy them at a discount. Yes. Now, the question is, even the banks have changed who they are. I know we kind of, this is a separate issue, but when you have players like China, who's coming in and actually doing asset buying compared to Russia... You also have an issue of government exposing another government or an economy, I should say. We talked about China before we came on uh, the show, and you sound worried about China, its position in the global financial system. Could you walk us through that? Well, there's a couple issues. Sure, it, China is the is the unknown out there of what they really have. It, it's assumed they have very good currency reserves to support their purchasing power because they are a one-party system. They also have the political leverage that would indicate that they may or not um, have the they have the sustainability. So they can look long term. And at the same time, which is interesting, they've been the biggest borrower from the IMF and the World Bank, which is a cross subsidy from the rest of the world. And then they turn around and buying from us, you know, buying our assets when they're taking debts from, you know, your multilateral institutions from the uh, World Bank and so forth. And then, of course, they have their new IEDB, which are IAAB, which is their own multilateral bank that is supporting the roads and bridges initiative structure push throughout the world in africa and other yes places. africa it's europe you name it so it gives them a lot of leverage in those countries yes and then the question is is are they going in with stressed loans to either leverage the country and or to buy up the assets so are they really buying the assets like ports and so forth to have the control of you, the key economic points of entry? Or are they truly helping development because they're being the lender of last loans? I want to talk a little bit about your own background. You worked at the World Bank and other major financial institutions and entities. So you have a lot of experience about what's going on in the world of finance today. I would say I have a lot of experience, but we're all naive in the aspect that we never know. We're constantly learning. Yes, I've been at the World Bank. I was there for 10 years as an economist, um, looking at country credit worthiness and so forth. Um, And then I've worked with the big fours to understand their accounting side of things. So I've had that experience. At the same time, 
I'm, I'm honest enough and humble enough that the more we know, the more we don't know. And in this new economic, new normal, nobody knows for sure what it is because there's no history behind it. So it's an unknown. I have naturally some concerns um, because I look at the traditional way of looking at debt to liability and resources to have a balanced budget. In this new normal, nobody seems to worry about a balanced budget in any way. Because I think people just think you can grow it on trees. And it's a lot like, in my opinion, Wall Street has gotten much more into the perspective of venture capital versus the traditional traditional banking perspective since you had Glass-Siegel go away. Yeah, and we know where all of that has led in the past. What are your banking friends saying to you? Are they worried about this? The bankers themselves are traditionally conservative, even though the bankers have become much more investment transaction basis. So when you say bankers, you have to be careful which banks. As you have your institutional banks, you have your investment banks, they have different perspectives. Some bankers see this as a, is a stressed opportunity and a great opportunity for them. Now, is it from their perspective, but are they really looking at what's good for them or what's good for the country? Well, let's talk in broad terms. Uh, bankers who are in traditional lending, for example, serving the retail sector. Um, I would say in the mortgage business, they're loving it because they're having lots of transactions. Everybody's refinancing everything because of low interest rates. And we know their profits are strong at the moment. But, you know, anytime there's a boom, there's often a bust. You know, that's just reality of markets. Now, like I've said, traditionally, it's been like a 10-year cycle of the boom and bust. We haven't had a correction except for little spurts up and down here and there, like last week where it went down 700 points, but it went up 900 points almost. Right. So, it, you know, it doesn't have the rationality to it. We will see if the supply can keep catching up with the lack of um, for the demand that's out there. And it's whether people are starting to feel confident and safe in selling to buy something else. Because right now, that's part of what it is, is, you know, are you getting a new supply and you're creating new supply along the way? That's where growth comes from. How do you think the very smart folks were led to believe at the Federal Reserve view all of this? Do you think they're sort of skittish, nervous, worried? Is it all just a big, grand experiment to them so that they can keep the, the monster at bay? Um, honestly speaking, I can't speak for them because I'm not in their mind and I don't work in the Fed Reserve. I have lots of friends at the IMF. I have friends you know, in the Federal Reserve. I would be amazed if they're not concerned with the you know, Fed announced that um, there will be a paper coming out this summer on crypto, for instance, and what to do about it. You have Yellen talking a lot like not, something needs to be done, but no one can get their hands around it. And if no one can get their hands around issues, that only bubbles to be a problem. At some point, it's got to get addressed, whatever it is. It's the same thing of how do you get these assets to be assets based on their value versus assets being artificially bought to uh, manipulate and increase their value because of inflation or other issues going on. 
Any advice to ordinary Americans, middle-class Americans, those who own a home, have a job, may not have a job? What's the best way they should handle their finances now? That one, I would be careful in what I would say. I would say from a personal basis is you be careful in venturing where you venture. You're going to you balance. This is where you balance your portfolio. You have a balance of taking some risky opportunities, but also balancing it with some traditional ones. But in today's world, what is traditional and do they really have hold the value today? Um, caution, naturally, if you're going to be buying and selling, say, a house because you are potentially buying houses at all-time highs, just like if you're buying stocks in the market. Yeah. If you believe it's going to keep going up, all the power to you. And I think that's why you don't have a lot of supply of houses in the market right now, because people are afraid of buying up or buying something new, because I think there is a little bit of consumer confidence issues in play, adding to inflation. Well, I I listened to an interesting survey uh, on the news this morning that a lot of Americans are now starting to feel pessimistic about the direction of America on different levels, politically and economically. That's that's not a good sign. I think there's going to be some reflection of where we're at, where we're headed, and what is the best way in going forward. That's just natural politics and the market adjusting. You know, there's definitely a change in play from administration to administration, but there's also a bigger play that's coming out with the China play and other issues as well. And of course, where the EU is, you know, if you look at the EU, they have a major issue between the UK and the EU itself. And even within the EU, they have some internal squabbles as well, you know, because how do you have an underlining currency, the, the euro, when you have governments changing how they're spending in light of COVID. So how are you going to keep that currency equal to everybody within the area? You know, I use the analogy of is Europe a salad where it's got its different flavors of the salad? Is the dressing, which is the money flow or the common currency, going to be sustainable to hold it together and the subsidies going back and forth? And what, what do you think? I don't see it as a stew that everyone's kind of learned that the potato and the carrot are all one. And Mm. some of that just because it's got a long, long history of nationalities. So that sounds like the EU could could fracture or break up. I think it's going to have some recognizing of, especially when you're looking at how much the country's expenditure rates are changing in the last three, four years, because that's underlines the so-called one European Union currency, because they're all supposed to stay in that value. I mean, it goes back to what you were saying before, if inflation is truly at five or even higher because of different ways of looking at it, when the Fed traditionally looks at 2% is its top end level they want. Well, if you're at five, that's double and a half. That's a huge breakup. So you're saying there is a danger of the EU breaking up, Tom, that could happen. Anything can happen. You know, they got a long history, anything. Each country operates on a, on a different level culturally as well. Yes. I mean, I'll be frank. I'm, I'm an American. I was born and raised in the U.S. I lived in London at the, and I went to London School of Economics doing my graduate school there. But, you know, I don't live there to really feel it 
you know, you can read about it, but things change, you know, yep. politics change when economic underlying economics play, you know, you see big crowds coming out about pro and con with this whole COVID issue that's creating a lot of stress in different countries. And you have issues of uh, migration issues coming around. So you have lots of potential catalysts within the economies that could fracture, could make differences, because each of these countries is also trying to maintain its country flow. And then do you care about the country first or the EU first? Yeah. That's going to be a difficult balance. Of course, you have the fight over if you're a common entity, how do you get all the kids to play together? Or even worse, if you got a bunch of cats. We'll just quickly go back to the Fed and then wrap up. Sure. If you go back to 1929, uh, which the stock market crash that led into the Great Depression, the whole monetary system globally and in the US was much different than it is today. Clearly, there was no digital currencies and the Fed didn't have the um, the tool set and kit as it has today. It can flood the market with liquidity. It can do repurchase agreements and all kinds of esoteric things. That's possible today. It wasn't possible back then. I suppose the question arises, if, if the Fed hadn't intervened this time around, we would have in 2008 and today been plunged into a very serious financial crisis. There's two arguments to the two that one could say they had no choice, but 2008, even, you know, the tools available are so different. And again, crypto is a potential new tool to flood the market with a bunch of money. And does it just magically create this money or is there really value to it? You know, when you look at the US dollar, it says in trust. Well, people believe that is going to be a dollar of transaction between buying so you don't have to do barter to say, hey, that's how much that thing is worth. I'm going to give you that dollar and I'm going to have trust in that dollar for that good. And then I'm going to turn around and sell that to buy something else. The issue is as time progresses, humans are very innovative in their opportunities and what they can do. And the markets themselves having new products that are available, whether they're risk uh, mitigation tools or means to help an economy go. So it's a it's a vibrant situation. Like I was, but one thing of caution, like I was mentioning, I think with you earlier, maybe before the broadcast, when you look at 1929 is a whole different world than what it is today. So when they talk, for instance, infrastructure, if you do infrastructure today, it's more capital intensive. So are you going to really get the economic um, return for the value that you did back then? Well, you have people working, shoveling when you're using big equipment to do it today. And this big equipment, how much of that big equipment is bought and purchased within the country? Or are you subsidizing another country by buying stuff from other places? So it's questionable if you have the same right of return, for instance, with infrastructure as a tool to help the economy through a bad time. Can I nail you on any short-term forecasts for the US and global economy and long-term? Where, where could it be headed? Do you think in the next few months we'll have see a pickup in activity or is it not that clear because of the way COVID keeps changing and the variant comes into play? Personally, with COVID, I would say a lot of it depends on how the politics works around the COVID. You know, if the politics is control and 
shutdowns like what you're seeing in Australia right now in New Zealand in particular, or in Brussels, which has got a huge lockdown, and then how the populations react to it. If there is solutions to it, so people feel confident to participate in the market and in the economy. And I do think it's going to be some realizations what are going to start coming out in, you know, the next year, two years for sure, under what is this new monetary theory? And is it another Keynesian? Or is it do we need to be more of your monetarist theories? Yeah, modern monetary theory you're referring to here. Yes, that a lot of people think this is the new Keynesian theory. What do you think about it? I'm skeptical personally. You know, anything that's new and untested is going to be a concern. Like I said, at some point, in my opinion, you can't just keep pumping money. Someplace you got to pay for it or someone's going to pay for it. Now, some people think it's okay if another country comes in and pays for it, but you create a different dependency and a different rent of your country. I wouldn't say a collapse, but I definitely would say there is going to be some hard um, reckonings to happen. Some corrections. Now, whether the Fed can keep that in play without inflation, we will see. Far, they've gotten away with no limited inflationary impact. So we could have inflation, or indeed we could have higher taxes, uh, yes. or higher so interest rates. Then you have rates. tax issues. So then, if you don't, if you're taxed more, do you have the money to spend again? Yeah, or they could raise interest rates. Is that? Do you think we're going to see yes. an increase in interest rates in the U.S.? Potentially, that could get on the road too. Yeah. But if you have higher interest rates, now you got to pay the debt funds more. So nobody wants to do that. The Fed doesn't want that either. Well, not an entirely optimistic note to finish on. I won't say optim. You know, it's it's caution. But at the same time, on the optimist side, every time there's a problem, if you look at it the right way, you can see that as opportunity as well. Tom yeah. Ward, thank you for being on my show. Always a pleasure, John. Look forward to following up, and uh, we'll keep in touch. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.